Hello, thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast discussing the paper Association Between Calorie Surplus and ICU Length of Stay in the Critically Ill, a retrospective cohort study. My name is Kenneth Christopher, and I am Editor-in-Chief of JPEN. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Alexandria Page from the Department of Anesthesia at Surrey and Sussex Healthcare NHS Trust in Redhill, England. Dr. Page is an anesthetic registrar whose specific interest is in critical care nutrition. Dr. Page is first author of the JPEN original research article we will discuss. Dr. Page, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me, Dr. Christopher. I much appreciate your time um, and your editorship of this excellent channel. Thanks. You're most welcome. First question I'm going to propose to you is, what motivated you to do the study? Thanks for that question. So this study really started life as a service evaluation for use of indirect calorimetry on the intensive care unit after very close discussion and uh, with our dietetics team. In particular, we were aware of this because uh, there was also um, the ASICS trial, which had been ongoing on the unit, which was looking at alternative substrates. And also the use of indirect calorimetry, we thought would be particularly helpful in this cohort, which at the time involved a significant number of very long-stay ICU patients. As you can see from the study, there's a large proportion of them had COVID, and there was also a significant trauma population. And there was very limited data or evidence for nutritional interventions and indirect calorimetry in this long-staying patient cohort. This is particularly important, we felt, as patients with obviously chronic critical illness or persistent critical illness as a cohort remain to significant care burden and make up a disproportionate number of the bed days. And they also can have very poor outcomes functionally, physiologically. And as a result, interventions, including nutrition, are being kind of investigated and trialed to see if they can help this population. Excellent. Why did you choose your specific study design? So the key to this design was a pragmatic approach, primarily involving very closely our dietetics counterparts. So Anne Langham was the lead dietitian on this. And we really wanted to make sure that it was a representative of usual practice in intensive care units. For example, the dietetics input that we've seen is as the per standard times that we saw on the intensive care unit. And obviously, the nutrition that patients received was also somewhat dependent on the weights, which, for example, were had to be estimated to some degree, um, particularly in those very unwell very early. So as a result, it was very important to we could standardize. There was also a significant heterogeneity in this patient cohort. As you can see from the median number of days of ICU at the time of doing indirect calorimetry, for the COVID patients, it was 44 days and non-COVID was 10. But this is a very long-stay ICU cohort. So we expected that there might be significant differences between these patients. And so we looked to obtain also repeated measures and also to consider the indirect calorimetry data in the recovery phase. So once patients were discharged um, and to try and obtain this as much as possible. Now the repeated measures is an elegant way to study patients and allows you to have higher power with a relatively modest size cohort, but it's also much more complicated. 
And so I think that your group did a beautiful job in terms of using repeat measures in your study. And I thought it was quite effective. Let me ask you the next question. What was the most difficult part of completing the study? So that actually, I think, does also relate to repeated measures. The repeated measures to do this in practice in a systematic way was very challenging because of the nature of the patient's causes of their illness, obviously, is very variable. And there were some times when these were not possible. Obviously, we document this, I think, in Table 2, which shows where just the need to be pragmatic and to work with what we had to try and obtain the best data we could for these patients. This did lead to some variation. And also, unfortunately, in mid-COVID, we had a shortage of supplies. So this did lead to some delays, which I think a number of people experienced uh, at that time in multiple areas. So we weren't alone, I think, in that. Absolutely. I think that it's a testament to your group's fortitude and resilience to actually complete this particular study in the midst of the pandemic. It was very hard to do research unless you were just capturing data sets and data points. This was a very difficult study to complete. So I commend you and your colleagues for doing that. Let me ask you next, what were your most surprising findings? So we had suspected that there might be a lower uh, resting energy expenditure than was expected, particularly in this long-stay cohort, and that was, in fact, what we found. It is relatively surprising because there are other similar data sets which were captured, particularly in COVID patients, but they tend to end around day 14 to day 20, just because of the nature, I think, of how they were run. And in those, they show quite a high catabolic picture, a high like resting energy expenditure, higher like a, a more of a catabolic picture. Whereas we saw a lower RE. We suspected that this might be due to the reduction in muscle mass after that initial catabolic period, particularly as we know in that initial kind of inflammatory catabolic phase, uh, there's impaired beta oxidation, there's significant mitochondrial dysfunction. And as a result, use of like amino acids is often used seems to be used in patients as a substrate. In addition, we also spotted that the obese patients were more likely to be underfed. This does, I think, correlate with other data that's been seen by other groups, potentially because of some difficulties in estimating weight. But obviously, this doesn't lead to a reduction in adipose tissue for these patients, but it actually increases their likelihood to lose more muscle mass and have worse functional outcomes and have a more prolonged recovery. So we wanted to highlight this as well as an area for critical care physicians to be aware of and dietetics to be aware of to ensure that we look to avoid it in the future. Yeah, that correlates with some of the metabolomics observations we are, our group is making in critical ill patients where you get this incredible amount of amino acids in terms of the metabolites that we're measuring, 900 of them in every sample. And the amino acids tend to dominate in the very early phases simply because, as you said, it is a substrate. And you can see this when we're taking care of our patients. Oftentimes, they look like they're melting before our eyes. And that's the utility of amino acids from from muscle in terms of energy building blocks um, because of, as you said, mitochondrial function is poor, et cetera. It's very difficult to produce energy in the normal homeostatic way. So it's a very interesting concept. Absolutely. If you had to do the study over, what would you change? I think potentially we 
looked to make sure that we had a strong MDT focus. And I was very involved with the dietetics team while this was ongoing. But I think uh, doing that earlier would have been more helpful in the long run because I learned a lot as we went on from our dietetics team. And I think this would have helped in how we would have designed and implemented things initially. I also would consider it was very helpful to have the repeated measures, but these obviously were very technically challenging to complete. And as a result, there, there was obviously a considerable amount of, um, of variation between them. And so the statistical analysis of them became very tricky. Although I think it was very interesting, I'm not sure that we were able to obtain enough to get a good statistical analysis for those. Yeah, I think that absolutely the difficulty is, number one, getting consistency, but number two, also having enough patients where you can actually get the measurements that you're after in terms of the repeated measurements. I do think that they're exceptionally valuable if it's possible. You know, there's a lot more interesting statistical analyses you can do. They are somewhat complicated, but they are standard in terms of uh, how to deal with this type of data. And especially if you have this type of data, it's a very interesting way of exploring repeated measures in the same patients. And so you can you can create and deliver some interesting inferences from having the same patient being measured multiple times. Let me ask you, what advice do you have for other investigators? Okay, so I'm obviously very early in my career and I was particularly so at that time, um, it was in my third year after um, leaving medical school. And I'm incredibly grateful to be quite frank for the opportunities at Queen Mary uh, University of London and the Royal London Hospital, which is the team with which I did this work. So uh, Professor Pierce really has a very strong team there. And I think the team there was key to being able to achieve this. It was being able to have a supportive network to draw on particularly to iron out issues as soon as possible. And then again, it, in the MDT approach, there was pragmatic skills that were very helpful from the research nurses and dietetics team, um, which I found very helpful. I think for other early career people who are interested in research, in particularly the critical care environment, I think exploring and discussing opportunities and just speaking to your heads of department and being upfront about what you're interested in. I was very interested in muscles, uh, muscle metabolism, and there are usually opportunities and ways to find this. It is tricky. And I think persistence and not being afraid for that it may take some time um, was very important for this. Areas in the future I'd love to see more um, of is I think there's increasing use of cystatin C and the use of the sarcopenia index, I think, may be quite interesting um, if that becomes more widely used and more widely available for larger scale data. Absolutely. I think uh, you learned valuable lessons uh, with this particular project. Number one, not giving up. Uh, number two, uh, leaning on people who have experience and can, and can lend a hand and also advise you through this particular process. Because Closing the loop on a study is very, very difficult. The beginnings of collecting data and even analyzing the data itself are just the very beginnings of the study, but actually closing the loop and getting it published is very difficult. And it takes a lot 
And as you know, the publication process is not smooth and easy. There's a lot of revisions. There's a lot of critique at JPEN. We try to make the papers as good as possible. And you remember that particular process. It's difficult because the bar is high, especially when you have great data and you want to continue pushing it until the very end to close that particular loop. And so the fact that you've been able to close the loop, publish the paper, says something about, of course, your group, but also about you as an investigator. And so the likelihood of you being successful in your next project is even higher because you've had this experience. Um, so kudos again to you and your colleagues in terms of uh, bringing this project, number one, to fruition, but also closing that loop and getting it published. So last question, uh, what are you studying now? So I'm an anesthetic registrar. I'm finishing my core training and uh, I've just finished up my fellowship exams. I'm currently quite actively engaged in the research program at East Surrey Hospital with help, um, again, from the team um, under Dr. Ratsingham. I'm doing the Associate PI program, uh, which is an NIHR program to try and help uh, those earlier in their career. And I also have an interest at the moment uh, since COVID in the professional interaction of AI and healthcare going forward. And I think that's going to be a very interesting area to explore. And we'll be very excited to develop some of those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I, I look forward to, to seeing what you publish next. And I'm very impressed with the paper that you wrote and that you worked on with your colleagues. And it provides a springboard and a foundation for the next project, um, the next ambitious project. So I thank you, Dr. Page, for your expertise. It was a delight to discuss your work. We also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over on iTunes, Spotify, and or SoundCloud. I'm Kenneth Christopher. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.